Hello, and welcome to Ponda Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Ogilvie, developmental pediatrician. I'm joined today again by Nikki Jones-Stockreef, developmental pediatrician and current chair of Ponda. Well, at least for the next few weeks, I guess, eh, Nikki, before you pass the torch on to Alvin at our November meeting. Do I, do I have the date right there, November? Right, November 22nd. There we go. Um, so the topic of today's podcast is we're going to be talking about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which was in, developed and implemented in Australia. The National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS, is a program that is developed to try to create more equitable funding, supports, and resources for individuals living with a disability across the lifespan, so up to age 65. And later on in the podcast, I'm going to be talking with Bill Cowie, who is the chair of Every Canadian Counts Coalition, a group that has been looking to the Australians and interested in trying to see how a similar proposal might be developed here in the Canadian context. And of course, Ponda has been interested in this and, and following some of the developments. But Nikki, can you tell us a little bit more about Ponda's involvement and how you became interested and aware of the NDIS? Sure, I can. So Ponda's become interested in the, the NDIS in Australia after the Ford Conservatives took office in Ontario over a year ago. So just I'm going to give you a little bit more background just so that you understand where our interest has come from. So Ernst and Young was contracted to do a line-by-line -line audit of the Ontario government expenditures. I think most people would remember that. Um, and they were really looking to propose a plan to cut expenditures or, in their words, optimize investments. They, they suggested having funding tied to things like achievement of outcomes, having competition amongst public sector providers, and providing funding directly to individuals so that they can choose who their service provider is. So th this was based on evidence from governments around the world, including the NDIS in Australia. So the NDIS provides funding directly to individuals with neurodisability based on their needs. And um, uh, the, the Ford government was looking to their model of how, how they do things and seeing if we can pull some of the positive pieces of that and implement it in Ontario. So as we've seen, the Ford government dove right in and implemented a, a fee-for-service um, model in the Ontario Autism Program, the OAP. Right. It hasn't gone all that well and is currently being reviewed. Um, it was a very sudden transition to a fee-for-service model, and um, they didn't actually include the needs-based part um, that was used in the NDIS. And now they're backtracking and saying, okay, we need to incorporate that part. We need a needs-based um, way of assessing how much funding to give each individual family for their child with autism. Um, so even though this experience so far has not been all that good. Some of the benefits of this funding approach, um, Ponda has been quite supportive of. So uh, moving to a needs-based approach is something that we're, we're very interested in. 
and um, we certainly think that's key not just to rely on diagnosis and age and and we're interested in fact taking that beyond just the autism model but looking at all children with neurodisability and providing service to them based on their needs as opposed to just their diagnosis so ahead of our meeting, which, as you said, is November 22nd, um, we wanted to provide a bit more background about the NDIS to our members so that we can have a fulsome discussion about how to assess needs in our, in our patients. Great. So knowing, having us know a little bit more about the NDIS uh, and some of the details of how they do that assessment is really going to provide some foundation for that discussion. Okay, so a couple goals we'll, we'll cover as we're talking with some of my other guests uh, on the podcast. Um, and so if people haven't yet signed up for the meeting in November, Nikki, can they still uh, join or get in touch? Absolutely, they can. Um, we have lots of room. Um, they can send an email to pondanetwork at gmail.com uh, asking for information about registering for our meeting and we'll forward an invitation to them. Perfect. That sounds great. To learn more about the National Disability Insurance Scheme in Australia, I contacted Dr. Bruce Bonihadi, who is a professor and the executive chair and director of the Melbourne Disability Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. He is one of the key architects of Australia's NDIS and was the inaugural chair of the National Disability Insurance Agency. The NDIA is the organization responsible for implementing the NDIS. Professor Bonihadi also, is also the father of three adult sons, two of whom have disabilities. And he's a member of the Order of Australia for Services to People with Disabilities, Their Families and Carers. Thank you for joining me, Bruce. It's great to be here, Jackie. Can, let's start. Can you tell us what is the NDIS? How do you explain it to people who are maybe hearing about it for the first time? Well, it's a new way of uh, providing support to people with disabilities, new in Australia and a world first. And there are three key ingredients to it. The first is that the funding that people with disabilities and their family receive goes directly to them. So they can purchase the services that best meet their needs. The second, and in many ways, the most revolutionary aspect of the scheme is that the funding is designed to not just cover day-to-day -day needs, but to invest in the person so as to maximize their lifetime opportunities. And the third key element is that it's a scheme that's deeply embedded in communities using an approach called local area coordination, which was developed in Western Australia about 30 years ago and was designed to assist people with disabilities and their families to thrive in their local communities rather than have to go to cities and other places of uh, large population in order to get those supports. So the local area coordination was something that already pre-existed. Is that what I hear? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So local area coordination existed uh, in Western Australia uh, and had been uh, replicated in various ways uh, around uh, Australia, but not in a consistent way. It's also been developed in other countries, in uh, the United Kingdom, for example, but we're implementing it on a scale that's not been seen anywhere uh, in the world. So 
Uh, we've, got, we've, we've got a local area coordination uh, workforce now of about 7,000 people. Can you clarify for us whether it's seen as providing a service or more the funds? And what is that intersection? Can you explain yeah. that a bit more? Um, well, it, the, 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 uh, the scheme provides the funding and then it's up to individuals and families to go and uh, find the services that best meet uh, their needs. There's support for that through local area coordination. So one of the roles of a local area coordinator is to assist with uh, service navigation uh, and also um, when it's fully developed to assist with service development because in some of these places services don't exist and so uh, uh, one of the ways of making sure the market works is through uh, local area coordination uh, and also to help empower people uh, you know not everybody is able to navigate a marketplace uh, and so there's a key role uh, for local area coordination so obviously if you've got people who uh, are well educated who are articulate then um, they're able to go and explore these new mark the new marketplace for them this is a fantastic scheme but uh, for people who uh, don't have that educational background who are uh, indigenous or come from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds or have a psychosocial disability and may therefore be um, uh, not do not have a close circle of support um, then the scheme will provide those additional supports okay so that's ruled in there and tell us what inspired the development of the ndis how did this ball get rolling well i, I mean the inspiration um, i think came out of desperation you know our disability system was broken uh, there was unmet demand undermet demand uh, families uh, who were aging didn't know what was going to happen to their children with disabilities when they were no longer able uh, to care for them. The system itself was increasingly crisis driven. So with a focus on the people in the most desperate uh, of need. And so uh, that was the driver. But the reason that we got to this point was largely demographic that over the last 30 or 40 years uh, not just in Australia but in most countries including Canada uh, people with disabilities are not just living longer do not just have longer life expectancy they have much longer life expectancy and so for the first time we're fine, you know, we've got a generation of people with disabilities who will outlive their parents rather than predeceasing them often in their teenage years. And so the demand for support has been growing uh, exponentially in Australia. Uh, that was, you know, the funding wasn't keeping pace with that. The reason the NDIS um, struck a chord was because it's a system based on need. So need determines, you know, both eligibility and what level of funding you receive. And so every person with a disability in their families could see a place for themselves in it. So we were not just arguing for increased early intervention or increased more wheelchairs for people with cerebral palsy or, uh, or seeing eye dogs for the vision impaired. We were saying it's need that's now going to determine what you receive. 
And so the whole sector came together, but the Australian community also supported this overwhelmingly because none of us know when we ourselves or a child or a grandchild will be born with or acquire a disability. Was there anything um, in particular that made it this the right time or, you know, either politically or financially, anything in particular, or, or was it really just a matter of all these factors coming together? Well, um, well, first of all, we had a progressive government at the time uh, that the scheme uh, was introduced. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things that we did was we worked assiduously for bipartisanship, both at the federal level uh, and at the, at the state or in your term, provincial level, because we knew this was a scheme that was going to um, take many years to implement. And so it had to be able to survive and indeed thrive through changes of, of government. Mm -hmm. So we, we managed to build uh, an extraordinary level of uh, not just bipartisanship, but all party support. And that has continued uh, to this day. And so that has enabled us to roll the, the, the scheme I think the other point just to mention quickly mm -hmm. in terms of why the scheme uh, uh, ultimately won the support of, of, of government is that traditionally disability is seen as a social issue, as a welfare issue. It's about supporting the deserving poor. Um, and what we managed to do was to uh, make the economic case for the NDIS. So that we were able to demonstrate that by increasing spending on disability by roughly half a percent of GDP, we would add about 1% of GDP, 1% to GDP uh, as a result of, you know, particularly as a result of increased employment of people with disabilities and increased employment uh, of carers. So uh, I think it's the same in Canada. You know, the, the, the primary framework within which policy initiatives are considered is an economic one. And so we made the economic case. Uh, and so we shifted the debate from being a social policy debate to an economic policy uh, debate to ultimately a political issue. And you know, with overwhelming support. So multiple prongs and, and pieces of information coming together, both the social argument, kind of moral argument, I would add there as well, um, financially, which brings me to um, the next piece that, because it, it is an assurance program, so that it is a different model, as you said, of funding, um, and is driven by allowing then a, a, a market or a demand to arise. Is there specific oversight or, or um, a program driven by the government or the NDIS um, that oversees those services that are eligible under the NDIS? What does that regulation look like? Yeah. Um, so there is some uh, regulation. So um, service providers can be can register uh, and um, and, and so we have what are called registered uh, service providers. Uh, there is um, some regulation around the workforce, particularly uh, for workers, uh, disability support workers working with complex clients. Uh, there, is, uh, there are some registration processes for 
allied health, you know, which, you know, align with professional standards around physiotherapy and speech therapy sure. and occupational therapy. Uh, but in many ways, the market is relatively deregulated and light touch. I think um, one of the reasons for that is that, um, for example, people with disability uh, said as part of the consultations that what's most important to them is having someone who supports them with whom they get on with similar values who they like mm -hmm. rather than uh, particular training and that in many cases they can, they would be happy to train the person themselves. Now obviously that's not true for everybody but it was one of the voices that was heard and so I think we're we're, we are all watching this space to decide, to make a decision about what the regulatory framework should look like um, going forward, what market stewardship should apply to ensure that the market works for everybody, not just for those that are well-educated and who can advocate uh, strongly. Um, one of the uh, reasons that we've another reason we've adopted this relatively light touch approach so far is that the major work that was done to demonstrate um, the value of the NDIS was done by our Productivity Commission, which is an economic think tank. Mm -hmm. So the great benefit of that was with they could that they there was enormous credibility attaching to their estimates of the economic benefits, but there is a group of people there philosophically disposed to light touch markets. And it's yet to be seen whether um, that approach is is going to be optimal. What I'd say at this point is that the, for many people, the um, this scheme uh, is enabling them to do things that they would never been able to do before, it's leading to the establishment of new and highly innovative businesses and business models, you know, really creative things that don't happen when governments block fund particular services or service providers. Um, and so that creativity is, 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 is leading to all sorts of fantastic things that people with disability can now do. At the same time, um, for some groups, this is a very difficult scheme to navigate and it needs to, and accessing the market is challenging and so we need to make sure it works for everyone. So for some of those groups who might be perhaps a little more vulnerable in navigating the system, um, what have, has been learned so far about um, services being offered to them that may be not be evidence-based or in their best interest and of where they're spending their dollars? Any comment on that? Yeah, yes. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the areas that's uh, is, that is challenging is is the one you point to, which is how do you identify what is what is best practice and therefore what um, mm -hmm. people should use. And one of the particular areas of challenge and obviously of interest to your members is a, is in the area of early intervention. You know, one of the things we've seen uh, is that. Uh, well, one of the things we know is that um, 
family-centred practice is most effective if you've got a child with a disability. The provision of services in natural settings is best. Train the trainer type models are best. But what we're seeing is a, a, a proliferation of much more direct therapy models. And uh, I think that's certainly an area where everyone who's involved with the NDIS is looking to see how we can ensure that the evidence better informs people when making uh, when making decisions. Uh, how we move back to a sort of to a social model of early intervention rather than a medical model. I was interested to see that children under seven have a different route or stream within the NDIS. Can you just talk about the decisions around uh, making that happen in that manner? Yeah. Yes. Um, the reason is simple, which is that uh, in the early years, it's 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 often not clear whether a child is going to have a permanent and significant disability. So the eligibility for criteria are either under the uh, permanent and dis significant disability criteria or under early intervention. It's because it's not clear. Uh, it's important, I think, not to uh, to allow uh, more children to come in to the scheme under the early intervention provisions than you would expect to be in the scheme uh, long term. You hope that all of those children benefit sufficiently from the early intervention to not need the scheme, but clearly uh, there'll be a group that will have a long term and, uh, and significant disability and then they, at about the age of seven, move across under the permanent uh, disability uh, criteria. I think it's also important that um, you know we don't prejudge you know the mm -hmm. development is a is you know there's a sort of a, a, a wide um sort of range of normal around the mean and so uh the idea of the early intervention provisions is to make sure that any child that is experiencing uh developmental delay gets support gets the best start in life and for some children that will mean that uh they will uh normal abilities. Close um, the gap? Yeah, they'll close the gap. Um, you know, it's, it is it is um, developmental delay as opposed to the commencement of um, a widening developmental gap. And so um, we're just keen to make sure that every child gets the best start. And what I'm hearing also then, it's not so tied to a diagnosis, which sometimes other programs and systems we can get a little hung up on or constrained by, it feels like. Um, so again, back to the needs, needs-based. Absolutely. So before the introduction of the NDIs, we had uh, a number of programs that were diagnostic specific for autism, for cerebral palsy, for um, Down syndrome and a few other conditions. Mm -hmm. But... Um, you know, so if you, in, in some cases, children with the most complex needs were actually ineligible because they didn't have a diagnosis. So the system, you know, one of the things uh, that's really important about the NDIS and I think why it has resonated so much is because it's fair. You know, it's needs-based. It's based on functional impairment and that functional impairment can come from a variety of sources, but you know, we're interested in function. Agreed.
Agreed. As a developmental pediatrician, function is uh, all, extremely important too. Um, I mean, even I'm thinking of a lot of children who would have very rare conditions too that they don't fit necessarily into um, uh, a big pool where there's the same services that are going to be as easily applied. So uh, really nice to hear that needs-based approach. Um, does the early in intervention stream then complement other early interventions? Because I presume Australia had early intervention services for children with delay. What happened to those services after this was introduced? What's changed um, is really the source of the funding and the quantum of funding. So um, the services that and the nature of the funding. So previously there would have been early intervention services who uh, were uh, block funded by government, so they were funded to provide 20 places. Now they're not funded to provide 20 places, but they've got 40, if they're good, 40 children seeking services from them. And if they're not so good, maybe only 10 or five. Right. So, um, you know, the services are still there. The best of them are growing. Uh, and those that are not um, uh, you know, was um, effective, uh, are, are not necessarily uh, growing. So, uh, in fact, one of the issues we've got is that um, it's just the explosion in demand because many children were missing out and now uh, more children have got packages and we've got significant shortages of um, particularly allied health uh, professionals and even more so allied health professionals who will work in a family-centred way. We're shifting 0.5% of GDP into disability. It's a massive shift of national resources to support a group who hitherto were uh, massively under-supported by our society. It's a good point. It is a monumental program that's been developed and implemented. Um, we haven't talked about, we've talked about the funding and the model, but not so much the cost. Uh, and just, could you talk a little bit about how that was arrived at and what it looks like for individuals in Australia? Right. So the, the total funding cost was estimated, you know, using a combination of economic and actuarial modelling, mm -hmm. you know, based on prevalence of disability uh, expected support needs. And the total cost when the scheme is fully implemented in about 18 months' time will be $22 billion. Uh, to put that in some context, um, that's about 1% of Australia's GDP. And as I mentioned before, we were spending about half a percent of GDP on disability services uh, before the introduction of, of the NDIS. So, um, and so about $11 billion in current dollar terms was already being spent. And the mm -hmm. additional $11 billion comes mainly uh, from the Commonwealth government, but also uh, from the state governments. And the Commonwealth government is the underwriter of the scheme. So if, it, if costs turn out to be higher than expected, then the Commonwealth will 
uh, fund the additional amount. And the reason for that is that they've got the taxing power. Uh, they raise income taxes which and other growth taxes which the states uh, don't have uh, access to. So um, $22 billion uh, across a population of now 25 million people implies a cost of about $900 per person or about $17 a week is what we all pay through our taxes. And because it's paid through our taxes, it's effectively paid on a capacity to pay basis. So those who pay higher taxes, just um, they pay a little, they pay um, a, a little bit more. In our last minute or two here, Bruce, any lessons learned that I know the pilots have been uh, launched over the past couple of years. And as you said, it's going to be fully rolled out over the next 18 months. Anything you could share in terms of things that you've learned along the way? Well, I, th I think we've learned a lot. And the first thing we've learned is that all the effort and modelling that went into the design of the scheme has been, and to the validity of the scheme, is being borne out by the results to date. That's not to say that we don't have a whole series of uh, implementation issues, uh, which I would say is not surprising given the complexity of the reform, the shift from a welfare system to an insurance system, the shift from a block-funded model to a market-driven uh, model, the shift, the introduction of local area coordination, I mean, all of these things on their own would have been massive shifts. And uh, we've done all of that. And one of the other things that's happened is that state governments were large providers of direct providers of disability services. They've gone at, got out of the market because they have said this is no longer our, our core business. So we've got massive structural shifts um, taking place. We've also got the growth in demand for disability workers happening at the same time as there's demand for greater demand for workers from healthcare and for the aged care sector. So yeah. these are massive uh, changes. And, you know, we have had and will continue to have implementation issues. But the only mistake you can make in this environment is to not learn from the data that you're collecting and have that commitment to continuous improvement. I think the other, another couple of areas that I think are worth touching on in terms of lessons is that all the focus over the last five or six years of governments, of the sector, has been on the NDIS. We've actually got what's called a national disability strategy, which is about the strategy to ensure that all people with disabilities receive the supports they need, that our communities are, more, are much more inclusive of people with disabilities, that mainstream services, um, you know, uh, you know, provide, uh, fulfil their universal service obligations and so right. provide services to people with disabilities. All of that national disability strategy has just not been attended to because everyone's been focused on the NDIS. And I, and I think we've lost something as a result of that. Uh, and, you know, the important thing is to make sure that we get that back um, as quickly as possible. And I think the final point I make is that in the, there's a huge tension in introducing a scheme as complex as the NDIS. And the tension is between taking it really slowly so that you get everything right versus going as fast as you can so that 
you deal with the inequity of some people getting supports and others people not. We've chosen, and I think rightly, to try and bring people into the scheme as fast uh, as possible. And one of the things that has, uh, there have been two consequences of that. One has been that the planning process as a result has not always achieved the quality that everyone would like. But the second is that the co-design and co-production that guided the whole design of the scheme has, to some degree, um, been lost in this implementation phase. And so we really do need to get back and make sure we're hearing the voices of people with disability and their families much better. And I think that will come naturally now as the focus shifts from what I would call quantity, bringing people in. And we've now got in excess of 300,000 in the scheme out of an expected total of 460,000. The shift's going to be from quantity, from uh, quantity to quality, quality of experience. And in that, we must make sure we hear the voices of lived experience. So some good lessons, making sure to keep the, the global picture in mind and that national strategy, um, not at the expense of uh, these other great efforts um, and an iterative process of, of you know, checking, checking in. Yeah. For lack of a better way of saying it. Yeah, check in. Um, well, thanks for joining me, Bruce. It was really a pleasure hearing more about the experience, hearing about the inspiration and the development, um, and, and really learning more about a different model. All the shifts that take place, they're, they're certainly massive, so I, I appreciate it could be a big undertaking. Um, that's all for today. Thanks for joining us.